Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the chilly air of a Michigan morning, striking workers huddle outside the Kellogg's factory near Battle Creek, waiting for any sign of progress in the contract negotiations that are happening between them and the multinational cereal company. As the Midwest settles into fall, it's getting colder outside, and these are not fun nights to be on the picket line. But there's a reason these workers have chosen to walk off the job even in the middle of a pandemic. I think labor is in its strongest position in over 40 years. Workers have bargaining power that they didn't have since the 1970s. For these employees, striking is not an easy decision. It's the last straw, they say, in a years-long fight to bring a fair wage to future generations and to make sure that their own families get the economic stability they need to change a bit about how we are treated. There's been this profits over people, corporate culture, and it's time for that to change. Two years into the pandemic, union workers who have helped their employers survive the global emergency are now asking companies to repay that debt for their sweat and loyalty. By some estimates, the number of union workers on strike last month was nearly 100,000 across all kinds of industries, including retail and healthcare. And whole other categories of workers have been battling with employers for more power too, over pandemic rules. In this episode of Connect the Dots, is this a pivotal moment in the history of American labor, where workers, empowered by living through the pandemic, are flexing their muscle, and in some cases, winning. We'll take you to the picket line in Battle Creek, Michigan, where Kellogg's employees say it's been a long time coming for fairer pay and better hours. We'll also hear from a labor expert who does see a seismic shift. And we'll travel to New York City, where the strike that yellow cab drivers have been engaged in is a hunger strike, and how that situation became so desperate for them. I'm Linda Lopez, and this is Connect the Dots from Odyssey a weekly podcast where we bring together multiple perspectives to unpack a single compelling story. Heather Green is a 47-year-old single mother. She's spent nearly a third of her life working at Kellogg in Michigan, where she's now a warehouse crew leader. Over the past 15 years, Heather has been able to raise her children with the good pay and benefits from her job. But now... She's found herself at the center of protests and a contentious labor dispute. So how did Heather go from being a happy employee 
to a union activist on strike. You know, it's like a it's a it's a bad habit. You know, companies are, you know, they they tell the you know the forward facing public how great they're doing, and yet what they tell our employees, their employees at contract time is, we need you to give up more. And we've been doing that through all of those lean times because, you know, we are loyal to our employers, uh, the brands that we produce, and we want them to be successful. So when I say culture, it's because it's it's become a habit to look at a workforce and say, we need you to help. We need to take from you in order for us, our profits to continue to grow. And Heather says this is not a new development. Workers could tell for years that a different approach was being called for when it came to labor. Actually, yesterday was my 15-year anniversary. <laughs> I've been there 15 years. So, uh, you know, this is, we've been through, I think this is my fourth contract now. And there were times, you know, when they came and we had to negotiate some things because of the long-term costs would have been substantial for the company, you know, so yeah, and it's it's a slippery slope. You know, once it's gone, you don't get it back. And as far as over the years, I guess what I when I look back and see from you know from where we started to where we are now, you know, we used to have a lot of fun. Now, not so much. But the um, the atmosphere at work was was very different. You know, we we came in, put in a good day's work and, and a fair day received a fair day's pay. Um, but over the years, what's happened is there are fewer and fewer of us, and yet the uh, the pressures, the demands have become more and more. And as you know, over the past couple of years, there's just been this resistance to maintaining enough people in our workforce to allow for that for any kind of a balance. It's you know, it's that we need more, we need more. We need to save more money. We got to cut more corners. We need to give up more. And and yet those profits, boy, they 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 just keep growing. That is definitely easy to spot. Founded more than a century ago, Kellogg is one of the top cereal producers in the country. Despite a drop in stock prices when the pandemic first hit in March of 2020, the company still brought in $13.8 billion in net sales last year. But in September, Kellogg announced that it would be cutting 212 jobs at its Battle Creek plant over the next two years. In a statement to connect the dots, the company said it came to the decision after, quote, detailed analysis of production and investments. But for Kellogg's workers, laying off employees just months after reports that the company couldn't keep up with the pandemic-related demand for its cereal was the final straw. About a month after the announcement, more than 300 employees, including Heather, began a strike at the stroke of midnight on October 5th, as their contract with Kellogg expired. Since then, workers have spent weeks on the picket line. They've received support from national and state labor leaders, as well as from their own community. The community support has just been overwhelming. And when I say overwhelming, I mean that in the truest sense of the word. It is, you know, it is hard to find the right words to express how grateful we are um, from locals in our areas, our hometown businesses to just, we had a gentleman a couple of nights ago, I was on the line late. It was probably about nine, 10 o'clock at night. 
and he pulls up and he says, Hey, how many cups of coffee can I bring you? You know, and it's, you know, so, you know, support from the community has come in in the form of uh, literally thousands of dollars. Our GoFundMe is growing um, to, you know, locals that are raising money right down to the, to just those cups of coffee. But Heather has witnessed pushback to the movement too. Personally, I've seen two instances, the one finger salute, which, you know, hey, man, I see you. And uh, someone that uh, hollered out his window, oh, you're all lazy, get back to work. And hearing that is it's not um, upsetting in in the sense that we get mad about it or anything, but it is it's a bit sad. It it makes me feel a bit sad because that's a an opportunity where, you know, I, I wish he would just stop for a minute. So that we could explain to that man why we're here, you know, and he may disagree with why we're standing out here, maybe because he just doesn't understand. But what we're doing uh, could very easily uh, impact his children or his niece or nephew or, or something 10 years from now. Specifically, workers on the Kellogg picket line are fighting to prevent cuts to their benefits And they're pushing back on a wage system that would have newer employees paid far less than longtime staff. The point that we really could not agree on, and hopefully we will be able to come to an agreement, is really the the two-tier wage system. You know, they want that ability to basically reset wages, reset benefits to a lower level. Um, They wanted to remove the path to full-time employment they're working right next to us. They're doing the same job we are. Uh, there's no, they are not worth less. <laughs> uh, just because you want to make more money and knock yourself out, but you don't devalue your workforce. In the statement to connect the dots, Kellogg said that most of its employees have what they call industry-leading pay and benefits, as well as above-market wages and retirement. The average 2020 earnings for most hourly employees at Kellogg's ready-to-eat cereal plants were about $120,000, and more than one-third earned between $120,000 and $200,000, said the company, and most employees have comprehensive health insurance. But the employees worked an average of 52 to 56 hours per week. The numbers don't reflect the salary for a 40-hour work week, though Kellogg said that 90% of the overtime hours were, quote, voluntary. Even so, Kellogg called the overtime situation a problem they're eager to solve and said that the union rejected a proposal that might change current work schedules. But the workers aren't settling. This pandemic moment has allowed them to demand that their employers make the quality of their work and lives a bigger priority, one that works more for them. As pandemic-related labor shortages continue to disrupt our supply chain, it becomes increasingly clear how important laborers are to the economy. However, a recent $45 million proposal from Kellogg to fix its supply chain issues included just $4 million for employee-related expenses. And some of that is set aside for severance packages. And Green says those kinds of decisions are awakening workers outside of just Battle Creek. That's what's happening everywhere. It, or that, you know, the uh, the company telling, you know, corporations are no longer dictating to their workforce what their value is. 
you know, we were, we were working through this pandemic where, you know, we've, we've made the sacrifices like we talked about for the, our companies to be successful. They're growing and that's wonderful. And yet when they turn around and say, you know what, we have to take from you, you know, the American, we're not just dumb farmers. <laughs> uh, you know, we have college educations and we know what we, we know our value. And it's, it's this, uh, and I love seeing that shift. So many people uh, say, you know what, that's enough. That, that's enough. What you cannot take anymore. And it goes deeper than the specific demands at workplaces throughout the country for workers like Green. Labor demands are also about respect for a certain way of life in America. I think, um, I don't think it's maybe the shift in attitude is more of a of a shift in awareness, you know, of what of the role that we play in in the way our country works. You know, um, blue collar is as American as apple pie. And I can't, nobody wants to give up apple pie. <laughs> you know, we're like, no, no, we're going to keep that, you know. <laughs> And there's nothing wrong. There's no, no one should ever be ashamed to say that my blue collar job is worth fighting for. Is 20 years from now, when there's another generation of people raising families, buying homes, and living in a, in a manner that they can be proud of, doing a job that they can be proud of. I know you, you've been on strike for, for a little while now. How long do you plan to stay on strike? Are you prepared to stay on strike? We are prepared to stay on strike one day longer than they are. We don't do this lightly. This was not on a whim. It, you know, the, the reason we've done it is, uh, is for the future, for our, the future employees. According to Kellogg, talks with union members are expected to continue, and replacement workers were still on the job. The widespread protesting across the country along with the labor shortage being at an all-time high in the U.S., could be making this one of the most pivotal moments in the history of the labor movement. Michael Leroy, an expert on unions and strike history at the University of Illinois, says labor is in its strongest position in 40 years. Workers are insisting on um, more time off. And, And what we're seeing in the collective bargaining, but even beyond that, is fatigue. I mean, people are worn out. And this is a long, this is like workers have been running a marathon. And instead of 26 miles, some of them have been running for 26 years of being forced into work uh, on weekends and being forced to work 60 hours a week. And they've had it. They've just had it. And finally, the market is supporting, is giving them support. Some groups are feeling empowered enough during this pandemic to make demands beyond wages. And not just because the pandemic caused a reckoning with the value of our time and our lives, but because it brought up more practical matters like workplace safety. Initially, I looked at workers walking off the job because of concerns about being exposed to COVID without proper social distancing, masking, and it was even before there was a vaccine. And there are two very narrowly drawn labor laws at the federal level and a broader law at the California level that allow employees to refuse to work if they're if they have a reasonable apprehension of dying or being seriously injured on the job. 
we've gone from that picture in March and April of 2020 to the picture today where workers are saying, uh, at least a, a, a large segment, that the employer has got to meet their terms of either remote employment. There's a situation where many workers have kids at home that they're taking care of, they're not comfortable with the school situation, or they're not comfortable with coworkers not masking, or um, the workplace has become very political. But workers are in, a, a, again, an unprecedented position where they can have this conversation with their employer and essentially say, um, you have to meet my terms or I'm done. And yes, some employees who have worked through the extraordinarily difficult conditions during the pandemic are even pushing back against rules they think are unnecessary and maybe, they say, even unconstitutional. In Chicago, L.A., New York, and places in between, city workers, healthcare workers, school employees are all protesting vaccine mandates, in some cases facing loss of pay or worse, loss of their jobs. Most notably, police unions are fighting back. In Chicago, the top cause of death among police officers in the past two years has been COVID-19. But police are rejecting the idea of vaccine mandates. If you can financially sustain a hit, then stick to your guns, take the hit, and we will fight it. Chicago Police Union President John Catanzara is urging officers to ignore the looming deadline to report their vaccine status to the city. He's predicting if the city tries to punish officers for not complying, only half will show up to patrol city streets. Workers can be unvaccinated through the end of the year if they undergo regular testing off the clock and out of their own pocket. They do have collective bargaining rights that give them much more um, traction to push their no vaccine mandate position. And here is how to think about it. First, the employer has to bargain to impasse with them. Um, there have been negotiations. I believe the news stories are picking up on the point at which they haven't been fruitful. But the, the city just didn't walk in and do this but the city ahead of the bargaining said it's going to be this way. And so the union's point is, what's the point of bargaining if you told us this is the outcome? But the city's saying that <laughs> this is the world we live in and it has to be this way. Leroy says with laborers in such high demand right now, it does leave them with the upper hand somewhat. But again, with, with the vaccine situation, police officers seem to a significant degree to have uh, been um, susceptible to the whole anti-vax messaging. And so a concern that I have about this is bargaining is supposed to be based on a rational premise. And it's usually economics. But if the premise is that the vaccine is actually more harmful to me than not being vaccinated, um, I don't accept that as a rational premise. And it's hard to, it's hard to have bargain over things that are essentially disinformation. Meanwhile, in New York City, the yellow taxi cab is a cultural staple. But for years, the essential industry has been on life support and the economic trauma is heartbreaking. New York City licenses its yellow cab fleet with what are called taxi medallions. Over the years, taxi industry leaders, city leaders, and big money investors 
overinflated the value of those medallions from about $250,000 to more than $1 million apiece. But the market collapsed in 2014, leaving owners and drivers in debt, just about the time that ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft stepped in to fill the void, and medallion value fell to $100,000 each. New York City's yellow taxi drivers were literally driven out of business and left with crushing debt. About 25 New Yorkers joined city taxi drivers taking part in a hunger strike in front of City Hall Sunday. These guys are mired in debt for no reason. In mid-October, desperate to save their families and their livelihood, two dozen drivers began a hunger strike outside New York City Hall, begging for the city's help to bail them out. Driver Richard Chow was among the strikers. I'm feeling so honestly very hungry, very dizziness. I see the collapse of the medallion market as one of the greatest government failures in the history of New York City. Former New York City Councilman and now U.S. Congressman Richie Torres was one of the local leaders who helped push through a deal to rescue drivers from their mountain of debt. The humanitarian crisis is a product of a deregulated and overpriced medallion market that the city not only fails to regulate, but in many ways helps to create. I mean, the city engaged in deceptive advertising and speculative auctions and put these drivers at risk. These drivers had the American dream stolen from them. To restructure the debt at no more than $170,000. 20 years fixed, no balloon. All labor struggles end like this one, but it does seem that workers are flexing newfound muscle. I asked Congressman Torres about that. You know, we could be living through the makings of a labor renaissance, which could be a legacy of, of, of COVID-19. You know, more and more workers are standing up for their rights and no longer settling for substandard working conditions. And obviously there have been concerns about labor shortages, but, you know, I welcome workers asserting more bargaining power in the marketplace. It's long overdue. The, the cabbie drivers are an example of what can happen when workers come together and organize collectively for their human dignity. On the same day that New York City taxi drivers ended their hunger strike, 10,000 striking workers at John Deere voted to reject their latest contract offer from the construction equipment maker. The company said the deal was its final offer. The workers represented by United Auto Workers said it wasn't good enough. And in California, there's a strike against Kaiser Permanente in a labor issue that could soon grow to include thousands of healthcare workers. Striketober looks like it will continue on. The pandemic seems to have empowered American workers. As of early November, 22,000 union workers across the U.S. are on strike. Cornell University actually maps it out on what it calls a strike tracker. You can find it at striketracker.ilr.cornell.edu.
If you haven't already, we invite you to subscribe to the Connect the Dots podcast so you won't miss an episode. Find us on the Odyssey app or on Apple and Google podcasts. This episode was written and produced by Lauren Barry, Sydney Fishman, Dempsey Pilat, Tim Scheld, and me. It was executive produced and edited by Mallory Samara. For our team, from coast to coast, from New York City's WCBS News Radio 880, I'm Linda Lopez. Thanks for being here. All star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.